Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Great to have you with me. I'm Aaron Noonan. This is the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco. For another week, I've been off and about in recent times on a road trip through Queensland, chatting to a bunch of guests. Now, my next guest is going to be a two-parter because we talked about so much stuff. Part one this week, part two next week. Roland Dane, the longtime head of Triple Eight Race Engineering, accepted the invitation. I came around with the microphone, sat down on his back deck in Brisbane, and we talked about a whole pile of stuff. So in part one, this part, we cover a whole pile of really interesting stuff. We talk about the new era of Triple Eight Race Engineering, how it's situated, who's on the board, how does it all work, who, what, when, where, why, and how. And then we rewind back to his early years in business and motorsport in the UK. We talk about the, the massive British Touring Car Championship, of course, Triple Eight were the factory Vauxhall team in the latter part of the Super Touring era, and then moving into uh, the era where the cars were, well, downgraded in their spec to control the costs and keep the championship flowing. We talk about, of course, coming to Australia, not just establishing Triple Eight in V8 supercars, but before that, about Roland's first trips to Bathurst for those two-litre AMP Bathurst 1000s for Super Tourers in 97 and 1998. In fact, he talks about how he was actually quite underwhelmed by the whole experience of coming to Bathurst that first time. If you remember, we're in the middle of a split between uh, the traditional Bathurst race and the broadcaster, V8 Supercars, Channel 10, Avesco, Super Touring, Toka, ARDC, you name it, every acronym involved was was among it all. So uh, it's an interesting comment and some interesting discussions we have about his first experiences at the place that has really defined Triple Eight moving forward. And of course, we end this first part into the V8 Supercar era, talking about how Craig Lowndes came to join Triple Eight Race Engineering in a deal done late in 2004. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. This is part one of Roland Dane on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Repco. Roland Dane, thank you for having me at your place. We're looking at a lovely Brisbane day, blue sky. I don't know what that is, living in Melbourne. Uh, thank you for hosting. Great to see you. You're very, very welcome. A uh, lot of topics to cover off here, but let's start sort of now. We're about six months into the, the year. You're no longer full-time triple eighting as we've um, seen you for so many years. Mm. Are you enjoying it? You feel relaxed? Do you have? Have you had some time to do some other stuff you've been wanting to do for a while? Yes, I think. Uh, yeah, after you've been working, um, yeah, since you're eighteen, and uh, and working for myself essentially since uh, mid eighties. Um, that's a long time, mm. and uh, it was. It's been very good to to stand back a little bit. Uh, I had a three weeks or so in Europe um, recently, and uh, it was the first holiday I've been on for as long as I can remember, where I was utterly relaxed because these days I've got two employees, and for years and years I've had anywhere between yeah fifty and three hundred people that I'm responsible for. So 
uh, it really it really enabled me to kick back and <clears throat> enjoy uh, some real time off. So so far so good. I'm not saying that. I'll uh, be that relaxed forever. But. So we, we haven't got rid of you forever. There, there, there might be something that tempts you enough to go, well, I've got a bit more time up my sleeve to to put to this. Well, I mean, it, there's there's more to life than motor racing, Noons, as you True. should know. True. Uh, but the in terms of, you know, day-to-day at the moment, I mean, I'm, I'm still chairman of Triple Eight. I still chair the board meetings. I'm still at the end of an email when, Jamie or Jess um, ask me questions, etc. Uh, but I don't get involved in the you know, in the day to day side of it, and um, and I'm s- uh, still on the board of PWR, which is not only in motor racing, but but in motor racing is one of the real success stories of of um, Australia over the last uh, two decades, and um, and then I sit on the FIA. Touring Car Commission and the Motorsport Australia Safety and Risk uh, Committee. So, yeah, it's a bit going on to keep me sort of in touch with with mm. what's going on. For those who don't know of our listenership, we talk about boards and teams and who is on the Triple Eight board. For those who might not know, yeah, the Triple Eight board consists of myself as chairman, uh, Jamie, and Jessica as uh, as executive directors in other words people who work there um tony quinn uh as a non-executive director and his uh right hand man rex devantia so also tim miles uh sits in on um on some of the board meetings as an observer uh when he has time and uh he's got a wealth of knowledge and uh as many people know we're very good friends but he also knows quinny very well uh, he was a shareholder in Triple Eight for a long time and a director. So um, he he from from time to time is is also involved. But essentially, the board is is myself, Jamie, Jessica, Tony, and Rex. Hmm. The Touring Car Commission. What does that involve? Because I guess a lot of our Aussie listeners were kind of this island, <clears throat> literally, in, in not just physicality, but in our motorsport our touring car supercar um, what does that in what does that involve how does it affect our championship what is it what's the link there well the FIA is um, the world governing body of motorsport and under that motorsport Australia sits as the local ASN in this neck of the woods um, the FIA has a number of commissions and working groups etc um the most important of which is the world council which governs um the way the fia operates etc of which of course uh one of the leading lights on that is gary connolly mm. who's brisbane based um but is also the leading formula one steward in the world so uh there are australians then sit on a uh, number of the um, commissions, which are basically committees uh, underneath the World Council, and one of them is the Touring Car Commission. Um, currently, yeah, most of its mandate at the moment is around the World Touring Car Championship, uh, but it, it is expanding that gradually to to really include aspects of sustainability and across all touring car 
motorsport across the world, but it's a good forum and, and gives you an introduction to people who may have other ideas about how to do things, um, particularly when it comes to looking at things like the long-term viability um, of motorsport in a changing world. Uh, so to me, it's important to sort of keep in touch with those trends, uh, even though we're, we're not really involved in, in you know, the World Touring Car Championship itself, but there are a number of spin-off things that are always good to hear and, uh, and keep on top of. Mm. You talked about working for so many years. So when you're 18, where are we? When are we? Is this the, this is the Panther, which is, was what it started for you in terms of cars and work and, mm. and, that, and that side of things, and you've been full stick ever since? Yeah, no, I have, and it's um, and I can understand now. I, I didn't always, but I understand now why people. Yeah, when you get to sixty-five, it, there's a um, there's a, a tendency to step back a little bit. Did Not you have that built in your brain? The number of when you were going to go to, or just yeah, but, that way? but for different reasons. Um, I'd I'd always one of the things I don't like is um, is seat blockers. So in uh, in motor racing, we call you know, drivers who hang around too long seat blockers, uh, and they can appear in all sorts of sports, uh, but it's also in business as well. And I think that uh, I'd always seen um, 65 as being an age where nothing to do with whether I was tired or fed up or, or bored or whatever, but just to do with having um, proper succession planning in place uh, that I should uh, have a plan for getting to that age and being able to give the at least the day-to-day reins of running um, the business in Australia as well as elsewhere to, to somebody else. And um, so it wasn't an accident that it sort of panned out the way the way it did to and came to came to a head uh, with Jamie taking over at the end of last year. I mentioned before about the, the pan thing, so that took me way back in. So we're in the seventies here with your first mm. sort of real proper job. But were you was there car flavour in, in your life as a, as a young bloke, or did it just because it's funny that a lot of people in motorsport and cars get it from their parents, or mm. there's a family mm. involvement, but then there's some people who have no connection and they find it themselves and it becomes their thing. But what was it for you? Yeah, the the, the car and motorcycle thing really was uh was me you know my my father was um he was an sas officer in the war he was then a a doctor a virologist um very famous one and uh he had he liked motorized things he you know he 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 had Land Rovers, when a Range Rover first came out, he had one of those, etc. He enjoyed that sort of thing, but he could take it or leave it as well. Uh, whereas, you know, I was pretty fanatical about them, and I had I had a Morris Thousand um, uh, when I was twelve. My parents had just moved to 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 England from Ireland. They had <laughs> plenty of land, and I was able to have a a car on there and bugger around, you know, paddock bashing as mm. it were, the mm. equivalent, <clears throat> such as you can in a country with as many people as the UK. But anyway, um, and I had motorcycles, um, albeit small ones, uh, that I was allowed to have, you know, at, at home. And I 
and I built my first uh, hovercraft when I was 16 as well. Hovercraft? So, yeah, so, and that led to hovercraft racing and and bike racing. So, um, I, that, but it all came from, from me, really. I was mm. just interested in, in um, burning up fossil fuel. Mm. <laughs> Carried on ever since. Yeah. Uh, but there's... Even before all of this, you've got Australian ancestry connection. A lot of people go, ah, oh, bloody invaders, come here and stolen a pile of trophies and all that stuff. But there's a bit of Australian connection long before you, you came here to, to run Triple Eight. Yeah, well, bearing in mind that the uh, the vast majority of us are, uh, are immigrants at some mm. stage or mm. another um, into this country. Uh, but my um, paternal grandfather uh, was born in Australia, born in Adelaide in 1892 and his father came to to Adelaide uh, as as any person from South Australia will tell you as a free as a free settler <laughs> it always makes me laugh uh, and uh, and he became the first um, postmaster in Mount Gambia um, yeah, when they built a post office there in 1860 something so uh the connections there my parents met in adelaide after world war Two in uh, the early 50s uh, and then went back to ireland and uh, so my godfather uh, was a gp in adelaide and um, he used to send me wheels magazine every month uh, for years um, which made maybe have an awareness of stuff that was going on in Australia, which normally you just wouldn't be aware of in the normal course of events, no internet or anything in the, in the UK. And I'd, uh, I'd look with just fascination at the cars that were made here. Um, and, and also some of the cars that were originally from the UK that were then made in a different form, you know, different forms of, of Austin 1100s or minis or whatever that were made here. And um, I was fascinated by it all, let alone the, the motor racing stories in there as well. Every lap in under a minute, every move made to matter, every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth, every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. Where did the wheeler and dealer gene? Because if, you if you're involved in selling cars, there's a wheeler and dealer gene somewhere that's been passed on. Where does, where does that come from? Yeah, my, the, the grandfather who was born in Australia... Um, he went off to fight in you know, World War One, and uh, then didn't come back uh, to to Australia afterwards. Stayed in the UK, and um, he became the uh, the owner of a of a newspaper in the UK, which um, got merged with another one in the 1960s. But uh, he was chairman of a, a big printing press there called Odoms. Uh, he was. Um, yeah, it's probably wrong to call him a, a wheeler dealer, but he was very commercially focused, um, a massive philanthropist, um, and uh, yeah, wing of the Great Ormond uh, Great uh, Ormond Street Hospital 
um, in Children's Hospital in, in London uh, had his name on it for many years. So he was, but he was very commercial. Mm. And so probably came from from there because uh, um, I can't see where else it came from. Hone in. That sounds about right to me. That that does that does click together. So Panther, a, a little car company in the UK. That's kind of we we you okay. We've got the automotive flavour going. Mm. Don't really know what you want to do, where you want to go. Don't have this grand plan, but that's the first kind of step on what leads you here. And what what were you doing? What was it? I mean, there's a lot of people in Australia that would have never heard of what a Panther was. Yeah, so uh, Panther Westwinds, as a company was called in the 1970s, was the brainchild of a a guy called Robert Jenkel who worked in the clothing industry, fashion industry. And um, he loved cars and he built a car in his spare time and everything. Everyone said, well, why don't you start making it, etc. So um, in in a way which was sort of easier back then, I suppose that fewer regulations and yeah, uh, there was no type approval as such when he started in the you early seventies. Just do 70s. whatever. <laughs> yeah, just pretty, go for it. Pretty much, as long mm. as it had lights and mirrors on it. <laughs> so, um, so he started off making a um, uh, really a, a modern version of a Jaguar SS one hundred, and um, and it was a very nicely built vehicle, beautifully built using. A, um, different craftsmen around the um, the south of England to do body work, to do trim work, etc., paint work. He brought them all together under this um, umbrella of Panther Westwinds, and it wasn't big. You know, we're talking about 50, 60 people in the mid-70s. And I was there having, you know, not really had a good run through school uh, from an academic point of view. Because you didn't like it um, or you were no good? I just got, uh, just got bored with it, to be honest, and... Uh, only paid attention things I wanted to pay attention to. And so, um, and everyone in my family, you know, if they haven't been to university once, it's because they've been twice. <laughs> and and I was the outlier. So uh, I had to get a job. Otherwise, you know, I failed miserably and everything. And I wrote to two, two companies um, in the UK first of all, first off to see if somebody would just give me a job as a learner as just anything whatever wherever gopher and one was a company called rickman which made motorcycle frames uh at the time uh highly thought of uh and the other was panther and uh the guy the guy who owned panther um rang the house and said uh if you want to come for an interview tomorrow um come up so I went up and he um, he gave me a job which was basically as a um, an apprentice, as a management apprentice, if you like, uh, where I had to to work for between three and six months in each department of the company, both making stuff and also administratively, and see how I came out of that. I see um, some links to what happened later on down the line at Triple Eight too. With that, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, so I got. Uh, Got stuck into that. I loved it. Um, had a good time, um, but essentially learned an awful lot about how not to do shit. <laughs> um, because Panther, while it was an interesting company to work with, in hindsight, it was extraordinarily badly run, and um, the concept of cash flow uh, was severely misunderstood. <laughs> so, uh, and the finance director, it was a lovely bloke but he was more interested in cricket 
and um, yeah, that shitty British beer that you know is flat as a as a pancake and everything and warm, and he'd always keep a barrel of it in his Ugh. office. So, exactly. So um, I learned an awful lot about how not to do stuff as well as how to do stuff. And and that um, has proved really important, I think, as um, as my life's gone on. So, and I, the company went through a receivership, um, but was bought out by a Korean business called Jindo uh, in the, through the, this all happened through the, sort of second oil crisis as it was in, in Europe in, uh, in 1980, 79, 80. Bought by Jindo and I ended up uh, a couple of years later running the business for them. Uh, too young, um, really, but because I was, uh, what, 25 or 26 or something at the time. Uh, but it taught me a lot very quickly. Um, it also taught me that um, I didn't really like the Korean um, mentality of, of how they interacted at that time with with people. Um, it was pretty harsh, to say the least, but probably a good learning experience for me um, and, uh, and then convinced me that I had to work for myself. Mm. Park Lane is the next thing that probably sticks in my mind. So uh, if you're an Australian race fan, you probably heard of it If because we got the British Touring Car Championship, right? the two-litre era, yep. wide world of sports. We had our own series here. So that's probably where the Park Lane name pops up for us in Australia, but it had been going for a while before that. So in essence, it was buying and selling cars and dealing with people here, there and everywhere. It wasn't just the UK, was it? It really grew. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I spotted it. A few opportunities when I'm still working at, at Panther, etc. Um, and uh, in the I formed Part Lane in 1986, um, and essentially to to sell, buy and sell cars on uh, new cars for the most part, but not wholly. Um, in between the right-hand drive markets in Asia and the UK. So that means Japan, Hong Kong, um, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, um, Singapore, not Australia because Australia had introduced Australian design rules, which mm. started to make it very hard to uh, trade cars in Australia, but also um, uh, it included New Zealand. So uh, trading cars backwards and forwards, and in those days it meant a lot of travel. Um, so for years and years, I was uh, every month um, traveling backwards and forwards from Asia uh, in a big way. It also exposed me to a lot of things and uh, taught me a lot. Of, and, and one thing that we'd been involved in at uh, Panther was in the specialized vehicle, in its latter day specialized vehicle areas and armored cars, uh, stretch limousines, etc. And I uh, managed to get the franchise from a, um, a German coach building company based in Bremen in North Germany uh, that made armored Mercedes and stretched Mercedes and sometimes armored and stretched. <laughs> uh, to, and I got the franchise to represent them in, in the Middle East and the Far East. And uh, so that became a, a big part of what I was doing, um, uh, selling um, in 
through that sort of corridor from uh, on the Western Pacific from Japan southwards. Why Park Lane? Why was it called Park Lane? Um, purely because uh, the primary market in those days that I went after to begin with Japan and I needed something that resonated as being British-based. Uh, my office was in Park Street, which is actually behind Park Lane, which uh, runs parallel. Um, but Park Street doesn't sound as good as Park Lane. So, no, it sounds and, a bit more impressive, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And the logo was uh, w- um, above the name Park Lane was a picture of Marble Arch. So you're you know, just trying to um, make yourself sound better than yeah. you were. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, why not? Why not? Yeah. It's all about uh, it's all about what it looks like and what it feels like. Sometimes not so much about what it is like. It might be where it's getting to. So where does uh, – because a lot of our listeners know you as Roland Team Principal, Triple Eight guy, but they don't mm. know you as competitor. Or they might have seen you have a, a bit of a burn in more recent times with your, um, the stuff up in Townsville that you've done and a bit of Hyundai's and this and that. Mm. But mm. you, you raced like – was it Honda CRXs and all sorts of bits and pieces yeah, back I mean, in the, it, like, the, the late yeah. 80s, I guess it was. On and off from late 70s through to mid-90s, I was racing on and off myself, depending on how busy I was. Mm. Um and in the early days, definitely depending on how much money I had. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I look back with rose-tinted spectacles, for sure, at, but I had a um, 1980, I reckon, I had a, a yellow 1.5 Ti Alpha Sud two-door um, with a roof rack on it with a, uh, with a hovercraft and a trailer with a with a RD400 Yamaha motorcycle so that I could try and encompass motorcycles and hovercrafts in one weekend. Um, is the <clears throat> most race meetings, I can promise you, were only one day back then. <laughs> um, so had a lot of fun, but um, uh, but then I started, yeah, I've started with Ford Fiestas as a one-make championship then um, started racing CRXs, Honda CRXs. I've seen some vision. I've seen some vision. Yeah, it was very well supported and uh, by Honda UK and a very a very good championship. And um, and I did some other stuff, the odd race in you know Renault um, Clios, uh, and I did several years, three or four years of Group N mm. as well with uh, Honda Civic, uh, which I enjoyed. Enjoyed those cars a lot. Um, when I was at Silverstone uh, for the Friday of the British Grand Prix a few weeks ago, um, and I ran into uh, the guy who used to beat everyone in those one-make races back in the day, uh, a guy called Dave Loudon, who literally could almost earn a living out of the prizes he got from being so successful in one-make racing. Uh, and he was the king of them. He was absolutely the king of one mate racing, and so uh, extraordinarily um, talented at that level. Ne- never made it any further, and never really looked as though he did want to. But um, the one mate racing level was so high um, back in those days, and it was, and that's why I'm such a big supporter of the Toyota '86 thing here in, in mm. Australia, um, because I think it's that's doing what 
uh, One Mate Racing did back in the late 80s and early 90s in uh, in the UK. And although Dave Loudon never went on to um, to race at a higher level, people like Patrick Watts did or mm. Steve Soper, yeah. um, et cetera, uh, became very successful. And later, a, a guy called Rob Huff, who's still around. Yeah, um, a lot of touring car racing. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, and that's why I'm such a, uh, such an admirer of the of the eighty six thing here. We've already seen it's got runs on the board. You know, Will mm. Brown came from there. Cameron Hill came from there. There's been a, oh, a, a bunch of Brock Feeney. Yeah, Brock Feeney's yeah. coming there. I hadn't quite got up to him, but you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. You know what I mean. Yep. And, there's, and there's some young kids in there right now who, who knows where they might be in the next couple of years. And absolutely, they've got. A, I mean, we've got a really good one make history here, but. The choice of cars over the journey is always a bit debatable. I yes. mean, Scafie raced lasers back in the day. Um, there are none of those cars remaining because I've seen the vision. They were pretty much all crushed and crashed. Um, yeah. uh, well, there was an Alpha Sud series for a time. There was a Triumph TR7 series, a Nissan Pulsar series. Mm. Um, yeah, we've had a bit of everything over the journey, but um, probably just means that there was lots of wrecked cars and – yeah. Professional drivers trying to win the prize money or the, the car that was on offer to sell it off and pocket the cash and move on to the next one along the way. But um, where did you where did you and Derek Warwick come together or meet and how did that all yeah, start? We, yeah, we we met in the eighties through a um, through a mutual mutual friend um, and uh, and I started to because I was travelling so much I'd often be somewhere that it wasn't that hard then to go to a Grand Prix. Just work it um, out nicely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, and Derek, yeah, would find himself going to Grand Prix outside Europe uh, by himself a lot of the time. So, uh, so he had no issue having uh, somebody come along uh, apart from, you know, I think it was Suzuka where we actually had to share a, hotel room at, at the Suzuka circuit because there aren't very many rooms in the in the lodge at the uh, the Suzuka circuit and he ended up putting his um, earplugs in something to his snoring and pushed them in so far he had to get uh, Dr. Watkins to take them out the next day with tweezers couldn't <laughs> get them out um, <clears throat> was your snoring that bad? Apparently. Oh, but wow. I must never have been really it. bad. But I never you didn't hear it. a thing. <laughs> no, no, no. I was happy. <laughs> Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. So the the park layer, I remember the the Toyota Carinas uh, in the early nineties. I think one of those cars ended up out here that Greg Murphy actually raced for for a time. It's been restored to its Park Lane James K green and white any livery, which um, that's a bit of a flashback. But so we we do a bit of British touring cars. BTCC is really lifting off the back of the two liter super touring thing. The manufacturers are throwing cash like crazy how does triple eight come to be and end up with the voxel gig because am i right in what i remember that you were trying to grab a was the honda deal on the table there at the time yeah, as well? So it, i mean i'd been um i'd been running the uh group n hondas uh well i i mean they'd been actually been run out of uh out of Derek warwick's 
dealership. Because he had a Honda dealership, didn't he? Yeah. he several. But there was one in Southampton at the time. They were run out of there. But basically, I was responsible for the funding of them. And um, either it was, you know, was part lane sponsorship or it was other people that I found. And I was just, yeah, driving, having <laughs> having fun, etc. Then I... and. Um, James Kay was developing as a driver and I helped him and, and bought and we bought a, um, a Carina and uh, and ran it for James uh, then out of part lane premises but it was very uh, yeah it was a, it was very much as an amateur uh, privateer mm. um, outfit and I wasn't going to get any more involved unless it was going to be on a proper professional basis uh, and then um, it was actually I was at the first Grand Prix in um, at, uh, Melbourne in beginning of '96, uh, sitting in the back of the what would it have been the the um, Jordan, uh, Jordan garage with um, Martin Brundle. Uh, was he driving with Jordan or Ligier? he was because he barrel yeah. rolled straight That's down right. turn three that year? Correct, yeah. he did absolutely mm. right. Mm. So. Yeah, sitting on a, I think we're sitting on upturned milk crates, to be honest, or something similar with uh, Jonathan Palmer, um, Martin and myself. And they both said to me, uh, what are you going to do with Derek? Because Derek was a bit of a loose end. He'd, you know, he'd driven um, touring cars uh, with um, ProDrive. In, Which was the uh, Alphas, wasn't it? Alpha in 95, mm. uh, et cetera. And, you know, they both said, well, you know, British touring cars going on, you blokes should be, uh, you, sh- you blokes should be doing something. And um, anyway, I went back and uh, and spoke to, to Derek and said, yeah, we should start thinking about whether there's something we can put together because the championship's on a roll. Um, I was good friends with Ian Harrison who, who uh, was working at um, uh, Williams and uh, I'd um, known him since, you know, he was he worked for a time at ProDrive in the early 90s. I'd known him since then. So he was uh, in British Touring Cars at that point before he went to Willys. Uh, and um, anyway, we, we uh, said, okay, well, the Honda deal's on the table apparently for looking for a new home. Uh, for the following year, shall we go after it? Um, Derek being a Honda dealer, blah, blah, blah. Um, so we did. We tried to put a proposition together and, you know, we'd do this, we'd do that. We'd factory here, um, team of people. Um, and uh, anyway, Honda um, Honda decided to go with, uh, with ProDrive, uh, but um, the guy at General Motors, Vauxhall, uh, in the UK, uh, rang up and said, I gather you're putting something together and uh, could we talk to you about it? So we did, and it, we did a deal very quickly uh, to then become the uh, official team for for GM Vauxhall. And we had to put it all together pretty quickly, uh, get up and running, build cars for 1997, etc. It was a it was a hard year because the those days uh, the FIA had a homologation system for the aero packs on those cars, which had to be submitted by February the 15th each year, and then you couldn't change it. 
uh, and the Aero kit that we were using, they decided we had to use the Opel one, and Opel being the sister company in Germany of Vauxhall. Uh, and it was um, useless. Oh, I thought you were going to say shithouse. You can't swear on this podcast, <laughs> by the way. You didn't have to clean that up. It's okay. Um, it, it didn't work at all. Uh, it had been developed in a in a wind tunnel in Germany, which was later torn down. <laughs> it was <work>. so good. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, was, no, it was abysmal. And um, so we put it right in 98 and started to win races, but 97 was hard work. And actually, when we came to Bathurst, at the end of 97, we got permission mm. to run the 96 aero kit. Because it wasn't a championship race. So it was kind of this free-for-all, wasn't it? Didn't help Brock, though. He, <laughs> <laughs> he went and damaged your car. Correct. <laughs> oh. uh, can you give our listeners a bit of a scope? Because we super touring in the British Championship of that period is so celebrated today. And we know why it sort of didn't carry on because it just blew too high through the roof. But mm-hmm. how luxurious was it? How much money was floating around? How big were these manufacturers going at the time? Can you sort of quantify that for our, our listeners who probably just know it from seeing the highlights on TV? But it was big ticket stuff back then. At, at the high point in the mid 90s, and I can't remember if it was 95 or thereabout, there were nine separate manufacturers, stroke importers. Uh, official importers involved in the championship um, and throwing money at it. Uh, and w- one of the things about motorsport is when you've got nine manufacturers involved in a series, uh, they can't all win. And so there's going to be eight pissed off on a Monday morning. And now uh, the most I believe that you can expect to look after in a long-term proposition in a motorsport series is somewhere around three or four. So they've all got a chance to share the limelight. So that was the high point and the spending was increasing rapidly uh, to, and it was even in 98, you could see that it wasn't going to last forever because mm. the, the, Everything from the driver fees, the cost of the cars, the the um, the interpretation of the rule book uh, was changing so fast. It was going to be ultimately unsustainable, and uh, the rule book was an FIA rule book, and it ha- essentially hadn't changed since they'd adopted a set of British rules that had been written in the UK um, at the beginning of the decade. They adopted those as what was called Class 2 and then called Super Touring. DTM was Class 1. That exploded as well or imploded. And Super 2 was Class 2. And the rule book was essentially the same, just plus an aero kit, which came in for 95, I think it was. Mm, It was, yeah. Um, And... uh, but essentially the rules were the same, but the cars morphed from sort of Group N plus um, to Group C minus, <laughs> as it were, uh, yeah. pretty quickly, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which was crazy. Mm. So, no, the money was outrageous. Uh, in the final year of Super Touring, 2000, the year 2000, we ran three cars as Triple Eight in the UK, and we had a budget which would have equated at the time to at the exchange rate at the time to 30 million Australian dollars. And, oh. and ours was the smallest. And that's not even the biggest. 
Yeah, it was oh. the smallest. Oh. <laughs> and how much, like from a percentage point of view, how much is the manufacturer tipping the tipping in the the line lines share or all of it? All of it. You didn't. It wasn't a case of no. We didn't. You'd have, have to go, go and find and a few other things to put some other stickers no, on no, here. No, that no, is no. everything. Go uh, for it. Uh, do what you got to do. We didn't need a sales department or a marketing department at all. No, that was the no. one big saving. Yeah, because the manufacturer came to you, gave you the money, and, off you go. and you went off. And and that's what. Yeah, that was the definition of a factory team. Mm, very factory team. Mm. Yeah, very. We, we just touched on it before. So it's 25 years this year since Triple Eight went to Bathurst. We were at a really interesting... Oh, uh, 97. 97, mm. yeah. So we were in a really interesting state here where we had two Bathursts going. We mm. had a... Depends which side you're on and which part of history you like to tell, but the V8s had up and left the traditional race. They took some of their tradition and created their own one. Channel 10 showed that one. Channel 7 stuck with what it had. It looked to Toka to, to fill the field. So some cars, including yours, came out to, to run against the local cars in the V8s race two weeks later. Peter Brock comes to drive for Triple Eight, our hero driving with the, mm. the overseas GM team. Do you remember how that all came together? Obviously, we, we know about the rollover and what happened in the race and all that sort of stuff, yeah. but how that, all, how that all played out? I mean, Alan Gale came to who was, who was running Toka in the UK and had an interest in, in the Australian side of it as well with uh, Terry Morris and Peter Adton and co. Um, Alan Gower came to us as teams in the UK and said, look, there's an opportunity. Uh, Channel 7 are going to pay for a grid to be put together. Um, this is the deal. Uh, air freight your cars out there. Sea freight them back. Um, and do you want to come and play? And uh, so uh, we all said, how much money? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. First question: How much money? Yeah, it was, and so, uh, and he, uh, he said, "You've got X and plus this, this, and this." And uh, so, yeah, I said, okay. Well, what freedoms have we got around that and everything? Um, oh yeah, you can go and get sponsors as well, or this or that. So uh, we said, "Yeah, we're we're coming." And um, not only because uh, it was a chance to earn some money, but it was also a chance to then have our cars shipped to South Africa on the way back and go testing at Carl Army over the over the Which northern was a, a, winter. A common thing for the British teams at the time to to go and test. Not that common. No, well, no. I, I seem to remember a lot of them. <laughs> Several there. of us did. Yeah, but, yeah. The ones but, that had all the money. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, so anyway, uh, so actually worked for a couple of points of view. Uh, so and then um, the Gao uh, came and said, "I've we've got a sponsor for one of your cars, um, which was effectively Australian Grand Prix Corporation, mm. um, bringing Qantas to the party, uh, and it comes with Peter Brock." And uh, so we said, oh, "Fair enough." He knows his way around the track. Um, and uh, so they put that together as having a, you know, a recent Formula One star in the car in, in Derek plus Brocky. Um, and the and the other car, we could then, um, we put John Cleland and James Kay in, in the other car uh, with some, some other money. Uh, and so... It made sense uh, economically to us, a lot of sense. 
was it the first time you'd gone to Bathurst? The first time you'd actually, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then, and then back in '98, mm. uh, where '98 um, was commercially much better because we got paid twice. Because uh, so Vauxhall were quite keen to have us there because the footage would be shown back in um, back in the UK, and Holden were quite keen to have a car there as you know that mm. was with uh, Russell Ingle and Greg Murphy um, Channel 7 were almost desperate to have us there there weren't as many people put their hand up the second year as the first year they were very keen that we were there so I think we got paid two or three times to do the same thing <laughs> secret of business isn't it yeah, that was, it was a good win well you did have to cover off one car though because Russell did end up headlong into a fence over the top of the hill there at one point. He so did. That, I think that was a junker, wasn't it? That one was a write-off. No, no. They, re- they rebuilt that one. No, no. That, uh, that I believe that car went on to race in Sweden. Oh, well, the Swedes yeah. will do anything, won't they? Polished out in the centre. <laughs> Just buffed out, no problem, no problem. Yeah. What did Brock say when he went and rolled one of your cars in practice at the chase? I think he was one of the first days of practice and he tipped it over in the, in the gravel track. the first trap. lap of practice. For the first lap out. I think so. And it, uh, cold, cold rear tyres. Um and uh, I don't know, you had a cup of tea. Oh, that's what it was. <laughs> Needed herbal tea. That would have fixed it. Yeah. Oh. Uh, the second that you got there and you'd, you'd seen it on TV, you knew about Bathurst, but and I know how special and important it's been to you for Triple Eight in trying to win that race and the team's obviously won it eight times now, but was that where the love of Bathurst was really born the minute that you arrived with those those voxels and become – obviously you went away and you were away for a couple of years before the, the V8 thing happened, but Bathurst gets into your blood, it gets into your – and it becomes the, the passion. Is that where it really kicked in? No. the um, my, um, my feeling of connection with Bathurst – came about through a Wheels magazine that I referred to mm. earlier, but also watching um, packages of the Bathurst 1000 um, in, the, in the 80s that were rebroadcast the same day because, you know, time difference and mm. everything, uh, and watching things like the, the Jaguars uh, driving around there in the mid-80s. Uh, and to be honest with the, the – when we went there with the – um, two-litre cars, uh, I thought, all this pit area is a f- shithole. Which was the old one before they knocked it over, yeah. And there's bugger all people here. Um, it was underwhelming, to be honest. Apart from the the setting, uh, it was, the whole experience was underwhelming. And it wasn't until I went to the first time, time uh 2003 went as triple eight australia to to bathurst with a proper crowd um the proper grid uh that i really um appreciated Mm. what bathurst was all about and the campsites and everything uh even then i mean the the pits were absolutely appalling uh, and um, from a working environment, from an OH&S point of view, you know, even if we weren't that interested then in OH&S, we were a bit. <laughs> it was a pain in the ass to just wheel the cars out through the people and Shocking. back out of the pit lane and back to the garages. And it, it was, it was, it was um, 
It, the one thing it was, though, was atmospheric. Mm. So, uh, and I still rate one of the best things that Tony Cochran ever did for motorsport in Australia was putting together the money mm. to have that pit complex built and the paddock uh, put into its current form in 2004 uh, at Bathurst. So luckily I only had to endure one year. <laughs> you, did. you got your timing uh, right. <laughs> yeah, 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 of the old paddock because um, the the new one is uh, – was at that time and still is today world mm. class. Yeah, because you, you didn't really get the proper Bathurst experience when you came those first couple of times because to the the Heartland fan, if you ask them who won Bathurst in 97, it's Perkins and Ingle, not the BMWs because yeah. it wasn't their race. It was the traditional broadcaster, traditional date, but if you took the cars that raced regularly in the main championship with the local heroes away from that, it wasn't the same. So you kind of got a Diet Coke-level Bathurst, not a full sugar version, really, oh, and that's why it didn't feel the same. Yeah, totally. Mm. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't even Diet Coke. It was uh, it no, wasn't no even co- sparkling water. Zero. zero <laughs> it, was, it was nothing. It just did, it didn't feel that special. No, no. So we talked about Super Touring, that it goes through the roof. It dies. Of course, it dies here because it dies there because the mm. one here lived off what happened there. Mm. When did you – was it that change of the rules to the more standard type of cars for the championship in Britain to continue that made you look here? Was there any other places that you could have gone that had grabbed your attention as a place to maybe take up a challenge or, or get involved or was it always going to be to have a look at here? Yeah, I mean it was it was a number of, a number of things, you know. I was divorced. Um, I'd, uh, I had to um, – I'd had a massive – court case against the British government for them uh, acting uh, outside EU law and uh, which they settled in my favour out of court but um, also when they paid me the money they also one department, the Department of Transport which was the guilty party uh, rang up the Treasury and said we've just given this company a load of money so you might want to see how much tax they're paying next year so so, so this was to do with business world, not motorsport world. Yeah, yeah. and it totally do with the car business, and the um, which had yeah through the nineties we were incredibly successful, uh, and um, the so then um, yeah I became a resident of Gibraltar, which it's to be honest not not a very exciting place to be, <laughs> um, and uh, I just um, I needed a. Yeah, change of change of life as well. I was I was bored. I sort of you know bought and about three houses in quick succession and moved three three times in the UK as well. I wasn't uh, settled. I needed a new challenge. The BTCC had ceased to be a challenge by two thousand and three. To be honest, the cars uh, were what they needed to be for the time. Don't get me wrong; they were absolutely. Um, fit for purpose at the time, much simpler, too easy to drive, really, uh, mm. and um, didn't provide the same spectacle. The championship itself uh, was not particularly healthy uh, because it's very involved, but all to do with a, a company called Interpublic, I think it was, that ended up owning it for a while and uh, doing a a shonky deal around the British Grand Prix as well, which was meant to go to Donington or Brands Hatch and everything. There was a whole pile of stuff. There was a whole pile of stuff that was just ugly. 
anyway, the and I've been I've been to Australia um, what many times, but I'd also uh, you know I came two thousand one to the Gold Coast, came back in two thousand and two when I spoke to to Cochrane about it. You know what's the commercial makeup here, and I could see there was commercial opportunity as well as the cars uh, being interesting. Um, you know, even as being a spectator in in Adelaide uh, in the um, late eighties, early nineties, um, we all used to watch the the Australian um, whatever touring cars were at the time uh, and enjoy it because, despite you know the all the hassles over Group A and then changing to VH, they were still spectacular uh, whatever they were and faster than what we had in the UK um, even the group A cars were faster because they were using you know fuel that we couldn't dream of in, <laughs> in, in Europe and and uh, all the better for it but the I remember it at um, when Derek was driving for Lotus in 1990 um, and just standing on the pit wall with a stopwatch and timing um Jim Richards and Mark Scaife coming round the corner in the skylines and flooring it up to where the Lotus pit was and comparing it with the same time in the Formula One car, Lotus. And they were easy quicker every time. Now, Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Even though they were heavy, they were four-wheel drive, yeah. et cetera, had similar horsepower and just powering out of, you know, when they came into your eyes view at the mm. apex of the corner um, and powering out, it was funny. We do. We stand there and laugh. Um, so, you know, watching. I think um, uh, probably uh, Wayne Gardner racing a uh, uh, HRT car there yeah, as well right. at one 93, stage. Yep. Yeah, which because we all knew Wayne Gardner's mm. name, we sort of stand there mm. and watch. Um, so, uh, I was. I was fascinated by it, um, but I was fascinated by the commercial opportunities. Yeah. yeah. So when you two thousand, I mean, history. We know the history. You bought John Briggs's team to create your Triple Eight in Australia, but there was a lot of stuff going on at the time from a Holden perspective with Walkinshaw's collapse overseas, HRT, Kmart. Mm. So you you were in the market for that, but were you offered Kmart in the end, and you didn't want it because you wanted the main team is that the, the basic premise of it all yeah i mean when 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 the walkinshaw thing happened in early 2003 um the guy who was running gm Vauxhall in the uk was a guy called kevin whale who had been a long-time holden person he was australian uh, he'd gone from australia to singapore i think it was to the international division then on to the uk he was a massive supporter of triple eight in the uk um and uh I said to him, can you put in a word with us with, with Holden? Because Holden had taken over mm. the Walkinshaw cars but couldn't keep them because the rules of Tika rules, a manufacturer or an importer couldn't own a, a team. So they had to divest themselves of it anyway. Um, and Kevin Whale, uh, he tried and drew a blank because too many local interests decided what they were going to do but then yeah um, we were offered the, the what was then the Kmart team uh, and, um, and and that ended up with the Kellys 
But, uh, yeah, I was offered that and I said no. We know what you did do. You ended up on the other side of the divide for the next seven years in terms of Better Electrical and Vodafone and mm. Falcons and we're going to next year, it'll be the 20th anniversary of Triple Eight Australia, which is scary that it's flown so fast. September 03, um, if I remember rightly, mm. Paul Radisish and Rickard Rydell, who came that out to drive the Enduros that year. That's right. And Dean Canto, who was a full-timer, and Matthew White actually right. drove with him. Not the TV Matthew White, the, the yeah. Super 2 team owner who's a long-time driver team owner. <laughs> What did you really expect you were going to do? I mean, you could not have predicted all of this. You would have hoped for what's happened. But what was the initial expectation for the first couple of years at the least? Because there's no way you could have planned all this. No way. I mean, you're good, but seriously, like, <laughs> you could not have ended up with the thought that there'd be 230-plus wins, championships to boot, Bathurst wins, you know, all the, the, the stats that keep me interested in all that stuff. But you couldn't have predicted all that. So what was the initial short-term goal plan from 03 and and getting into it yeah uh, it was uh, look let's let's give it three years and see where we are so by the end of um uh 06 you know uh we're we making a fist of it or not and uh, has this got potential but um yeah it meant it meant being in boots and all especially when i when I really understood that at, at Briggs's, uh, there were there was a small core of um, of very good people, and as you know, some around today. Mm. Uh, but <laughs> um, there was no management to speak of, and that meant then getting yeah rolling up my sleeves and getting stuck into it completely, and uh, and then trying to. To build the uh, build the team from that, I was uh, very fortunate that I had uh, my first choice of technical um, support in terms of Ludo Lacroix wanting to to come and get involved as well. Um, there was yeah, it was a backup plan as well, but uh, Ludo was far and away the first choice. Who was your backup plan? Uh, no, he's uh, he's still working today. All right, we'll wait else, till he's done. We can else. tell it story another day. <laughs> okay, so no, that's but, for part two of rolling down the track. Yeah, but yeah, there was a um, so and Ludo came and uh, and w- then we had to to learn yeah hands on. Um, I'd known Campbell Little for. 10 years or so, basically since we'd sold that Karina you referred to mm. earlier to a guy called um, Bruce Miles Bruce in, New Miles in yeah. Christchurch. Yep. Yeah. So um, Campbell came to work for us, which was, which was helpful in terms of understanding the local topography, the mm. uh, championship and everything. So, yeah, we um, – Got stuck in, and uh, and then, yeah, basically trying to work out first and foremost what the uh, what the commercial side was going to look like uh, over yeah the next five years, and um, planning that, and off the back of that, uh, then seeing okay, well if we're aspiring to this, it's a sort of chicken and egg. Uh, so as long as we can show ourselves uh, 
in a reasonable uh, light, you know, and, and a, without being derogatory, a better light than the Briggs outfit had, mm. uh, then um, we've got half a chance of making this stack up. Everyone will obviously wind back and look to Craig coming to Triple Eight for 05. Huge thing for your team. And it, I guess probably from the point of view, and I know you've talked about this before and I've, I've read it and seen in other interviews, but when you had – you know, he was a known entity. He'd been a champion. He was the people's champ. He still is the people's champ. If you were doing good enough in building cars and providing a, equipment – if it was winning, or if it wasn't winning, and Craig Lowndes is driving it, you know that you've got a guy that can win races, and your car's not quite there. So how? That's a he's the crucial element to the next phase of that. But that was the big ticket thing, not just because he was a name, not just because he was a smiley face and all the stuff that he is, but he would not just give you legitimacy; he would also let you understand where our gears at because we know he's good. That mm. was that was a basic premise of that too. Not just the fact that he was clearly very good as well. Yeah, I mean, it, um, Craig, if you like, as far as the local scene was concerned, um, there was Marcus Ambrose and there was Craig Lands, and Craig hadn't been able to show his um, true pace, uh, really, since he walked away from the HRT uh, scene. And, uh, and he was frustrated by that. Um, he, he was looking for a solution to that uh and one thing that i think has i've always been is a good salesman and um campbell little helped me at the time as well with craig uh, but um you know sold him the dream at a time when he was ready to be sold the dream because he wasn't happy where he was so uh you know as garth tander will tell you i I spoke to him as well. I spoke to Murph, um, but the aim, if I could get Craig, was to, yeah, was to get Craig, and um, uh, because um, Marcus wasn't about to uh, to leave Stones at, um, at that at that time. Did you ask him to? Um, I spoke to him, but only to know what his contractual arrangements were. Um, but Craig was the the one who could give us on-track and off-track uh, credibility. What was the process of selling him? How, how did you sell it to him? What did you sell to him that got him over the line and how did you go about it? Look, I uh, went and sat, sat with him, uh, Campbell and I, at his house um, in Kilcoy at that time and, um, and sat with him and, look, despite what it sometimes looked like in 2004, um, we do know what we're doing. And uh, plus I've done a deal with Stones to use their engines in 2005. Um, and uh, every race that goes by now, yeah, we're learning more and more. And uh, we've, we know how to do it. We know how to win races. And, you know, at that stage... Um, between Luda and I, we'd won an awful lot of races, uh, not in Australia, but elsewhere. So, and Craig, Craig wanted to be convinced that was the great thing. Yeah, he, he wanted an excuse to leave where he was. Um, the only real opposition re- to it really was um, the guy who ran Ford at the time, a guy called Tom Gorman. Who, yeah, why are you going up there? We formed this super team down here. 
uh, of Ford Performance Racing, etc., with ProDrive. Um, why do you want to go up there? But um, Craig wanted to be in Queensland as well. Mm. And uh, so um, luckily uh, for, uh, for us, he, um, he, he uh, yeah, bought the dream. And that's where we're going to leave part one of my chat with Roland Dane. We have to leave a little bit in the bank for next week. And there's not a little bit in the bank. There is a lot in the bank to talk about next week. We talk about Triple H's breakthrough win, the Stone Brothers engine deal that got them going, how their success changed some of the rules of the Bathurst 1000. We talk about the 2006 Bathurst race and the winning car. We talk about some of the great years at Bathurst where the team won the race, some of the years where they contended but didn't win. There's always a story of Triple Eight and Bathurst. Uh, We also talk about his car collection and Jason Plato as well. He tackles the National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions. It's a very big part two of my podcast chat with Roland Dane. It comes up next week on the V8 Sleuth Podcast. Powered by Repco. Don't forget, every Tuesday, Castrol Motorsport News Podcast with Andrew Van Leeuwen and Stefan Bartholomeus, the boys, with the latest of news and insight into Australian and world motorsport. If you don't subscribe to it, you really should. So the notification will come up on your device, whether it's your mobile or your laptop, wherever it might be, whenever there is a new episode published. They're normally about 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock every Tuesday afternoon. It's the perfect pod for you to drive home to or to commute home from work or have it on around the house, whatever whatever the case may be, uh, at that time of day for you to get your latest fix of Castro Motorsport News. Right, that's it. We're done. Part one of Roland Dane is in the books. Part two comes at you next Wednesday. If you're listening to this down the track and you've just listened to this episode, you can just scroll ahead and listen to part two. But if you're listening to it at the time we've published it, you're going to have to wait a week. But I'm sure it is worth the wait. There's plenty of great chat topics in among that one. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Really appreciate the support. We'll chat to you next week with another episode of the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Repco. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.